For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Part three of our series here, Marks of the Creator Hidden in Creation. And we're going to camp out again on those um, three verses that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Romans 1, verse 18 through 20. Remember, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." So we focused in the last couple weeks on the evidence that exists in creation and how that gives us clues about God's creation and his hand of work. But now we want to sort of shift gears and look inward. He says that there's evidence within us that actually proclaims God's creative hand. And I think... Some theologians have called this evidence from internal consistency or otherwise known as presuppositionalism. And the basic idea is that when we live a certain way, it betrays what we actually believe. So when you compare people's beliefs and their actions, a lot of times there's a discrepancy between the two. And typically, our actions demonstrate our true beliefs better than our words do. And so, I think we hold a certain set of presuppositions and our ability to live consistently with those presuppositions or those worldviews that we hold, that, that those are telling of um, the way that we live. You know, when our actions contradict our claimed beliefs, it suggests that we're either confused or dishonest. Let's look at a few examples. Take, for instance, your friend says, he doesn't believe in gravity, but then he wears a parachute while skydiving. You'd be scratching your head a little bit, right? Be like, wait a second, you said you don't believe in gravity, so why are you wearing that? Um, Either he's confused about what gravity means or he's being dishonest. He actually does believe that gravity exists. Let's say your fiancé says he loves you, but he wants to have the freedom to sleep with other women. You're like, hmm. Either he doesn't know what love is, or he's being dishonest and he really doesn't love you, right? What about this one? A friend says that he's concerned about the environment, but then you catch him breaking old thermometers and pouring mercury into the Olentangy River. That would raise some eyebrows. You'd be like, okay, wait a second. So either you don't know what mercury does to fish in the environment, or you're lying. You're not really into the environment. And likewise, I think that when people say that they believe a certain set of beliefs, or they ascribe to a certain worldview, those beliefs are often demonstrated as either Uh, true beliefs that they hold or they're being dishonest about them by their actions. An illustration that I remember reading a while ago is um, 
Let's say there are two people who are on a train ride to Canada. And as they're heading toward Canada, they notice that there is this hill with a rock formation that says, Welcome to Canada. That it appears that people had constructed with rocks a message, a sign indicating that they were heading to Canada and crossing the border. And so let's say the woman who's sitting there and sees the sign turns to the, the person sitting next to her and says, wow, it's pretty cool that they were able to construct this sign that says, welcome to Canada. And of course, he's a skeptic and he says, what do you mean? And she said, well, look at that hill. He said, what makes you think that somebody put that together? I mean, after all, it's on a hill. There are rocks on top of that hill. Maybe there was seismic activity over the course of thousands of years or even tens of thousands of years that just so happened to cause those rocks to fall in that formation that happens to look like it says, welcome to Canada. And she said, well, I think that's highly unlikely, but I guess I can't argue that. So as they arrive at their destination, the guy turns to this woman and says, hey, so are you going to convert your money over to Canadian dollars? And she's like, why would I do that? He's like, well, we're in Canada. And she's like, well, why would you think that? He's like, don't you remember seeing that sign? And so you can see sort of the, the, the problem there, right? On the one hand, he has this naturalistic explanation for how that sign came to be, and yet he lives his life in a way that indicates that that sign is actually conveying information. And so likewise, many people who hold to a naturalistic worldview, that is a belief that our universe is governed simply by cause and effect, that it's a closed system, that there, there's no supernatural intervention, but that natural laws applying itself on matter really explain everything that we see, even things of human existence. And yet, when you see people and the way they live, it seems to contradict their presupposition or their worldview. I remember hearing these, uh, a set of these arguments as a young Christian, and I remember it just really striking me. And as I've walked with God probably over the last 20 years, there have been numerous times, especially early on, within the first five years where I encountered doubt. I started thinking to myself, is God real? Is he really out there? Am I, is this just a delusion in my mind that I'm making this up? Or maybe I'm just like swimming down this stream of groupthink. I'm surrounded by people who believe that God exists, and so maybe I'm being influenced by them. And yet maybe there's really no evidence to believe that he exists. And yet I come back to these arguments where I envision a world without God and as I see things that seem real to me, real to my human existence, disappear, it leads me back to belief that God must exist. So let's look at a few areas that reveal presuppositions. Um, <clears throat> think about morality, for example. You know, when you think about morality, um, each human being, from what I can tell, has... This, this sense that morality exists. C.S. Lewis called these moral motions that we feel. So, for example, 
when a young man gives up his seat to a 70-year-old woman in a bus, he is going through moral motions. He's indicating that it's right for him to give this woman a seat and for him to sacrifice his comfort. Or, for example, when you feel indignation as you're walking down on campus and you see a car packed with teenagers splashing students on High Street after a storm and laughing about it, you are experiencing moral emotions, right? And so when we talk about this idea of moral emotions, this is something that seems universal. Not only that it's transcultural, but also that it, it really extends throughout human history. We can't really think of a time where people didn't believe in this, this concept of morality. And yet the naturalistic view of morality is that morality really isn't universal. It's not transcultural. And it doesn't extend throughout time, but that it's localized. And really the idea is that natural selection is such that, you know, a group of people living in a certain locale, that they put together a certain set of moral norms to cooperate because that helped them as an adaptive feature to be able to survive and reproduce. And so those over time actually harden into moral, uh, um, cultural mores. And so then eventually they became what we consider to be moral right and wrong. So really when you look at this idea of morality, it's not this universal thing, it's not objective. It really depends on the culture. And that's why you see, for example, our set of morals are very different than, let's say, the morals of a rural tribe in Afghanistan. And so that's how you account for morality. And so when we look at the naturalistic view of morality, there's no, really, there's no such thing as the right and wrong way to do things. There's just a particular way that a culture does things that they consider to be right and wrong. You know, really, naturalism doesn't furnish us with the ability to make moral pronouncements upon another culture's practices. After all, who am I to say that another culture is wrong when the, mor the, the, the mores that I accept, what I think is right and wrong, is very different from another culture? And that its source is based on natural selection. It's evolution. And so you can see how this really guts our ability to say that's wrong and make a universal pronouncement. You know, if the universe represents a closed system of cause and effect, then what room does it leave for us for things like right and wrong? I mean, what, what's right or wrong really is irrelevant. What matters is what is. And so when we talk about this naturalistic way of thinking or this worldview, there really is no sense in which there's an overarching right and wrong under which people fall. Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher at Notre Dame says, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obligated to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine, genuine moral obligation of any sort 
and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think that there really is such a thing as a horrifying wickedness and not just some sort of illusion, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. In other words, if you see something happening out in the world and you feel this strong sense, that is wrong. Not just because it's my opinion, not because this is my cultural upbringing, but because it's morally wrong then what we're doing is we are exhibiting the reality of God. You know, <clears throat> I've encountered many dishonest responses when I've presented this argument to people. I remember talking to one guy. He was real sharp. He was agnostic. And I remember him showing up to a home church one night, and afterward we had this long conversation about the existence of God, things like that. And then the whole concept of morality came up. And I said, so how do you think morality came about? And so he gave the naturalistic explanation. He said, well, um, it's just, you know, culturally contained. And natural selection was at play over thousands of years, and it created these sets of moral right and wrong things to do that people hold to. But there's really no such thing as, like, an overarching moral right and wrong. And I said, okay, so... When you say, I think that that's wrong, when you see something happening in the world, what does that mean to you? He said, well, in all honesty, what I'm saying is that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like that. But who am I to say that that's wrong? And so I said, okay, let's just take this example to the next level. Think of some of the like, most horrendous things that you can remember in history. Like, let's say... Uh, the ethnic cleansing of the Jews during the Nazi regime, okay? Where they wiped out millions of Nazis and, and gypsies. And the belief was that the Jewish people were a blight on society and the Nazis believed that they were actually doing the world good by, by getting rid of these people and essentially setting up this state-sponsored execution of Jewish people. Are you saying that because they believe that, that that's what drove them to kill all these people, that that's their belief and that's fine and it's right for them? And he was like, yeah. And I, I was just appalled. I was like, are, are you serious? I mean, I don't think that you're being real when you say that. And so you could see how our worldview, if it's a naturalistic worldview, can slam up against these, these uh, feelings that we have that something is actually wrong, that it's not just my opinion, but it's wrong, absolutely. So what are we to conclude? I think, um, you know, the alternative here is that <clears throat> the biblical worldview says that there are things that are morally right and wrong. And it's not based on culture. It's not based on preference but it's based on God's absolute moral character, that he has revealed who he is, and that governs what is right and wrong in the world, and it's not changing. And that gives us the language, the ability to be able to make some of these moral pronouncements that we feel in our gut when we see something happen, a moral atrocity. We can point to that and say, that's wrong. 
Now, it doesn't imply that Christians are always live moral lives. In fact, we see many, many examples, and maybe we don't even have to look outside of ourselves. We can look in the mirror and say, okay, yep, um, I have a lot of problems, and I don't live consistently with my worldview most of the time. And yet, <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily mean that the Christian worldview is incorrect. What we're saying here is that naturalism isn't just something that you have a difficult time adhering to or living consistently with. What we're saying is that it's almost impossible to live consistently with that view. What about our mind's ability to obtain true beliefs? Um, <clears throat> Charles Darwin, the uh, d discoverer of evolution, uh, had some doubts about how evolution could produce rational thought. He says, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or are trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind? In other words, if we're descendants of primates, um, how can we conclude that our ability to reason or our cognitive faculties actually lend itself to true beliefs? <clears throat> really, natural selection doesn't account for our ability to obtain these true beliefs. Natural selection is geared toward adaptation and reproduction. It really doesn't care about whether your beliefs are true. Alvin Plantinga, the, um, a famous Christian philosopher, says, Boiled down to essentials, a nervous system enables the organism to succeed in the four Fs. Feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing. <laughs> he says, the principal chore of nervous systems is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth, whatever it is, definitely takes the hindmost. In other words, natural selection doesn't care whether or not you actually hold true beliefs. It, it's really geared to try to get you to a place where you can survive, adapt, and reproduce. And a lot of times, that doesn't lend itself to true beliefs. Leon Weisler, uh, the literary editor of the New York Republic, says, a naturalist portrays reason in service to natural selection and is a product of natural selection. But if reason is a product of natural selection, then how much confidence can we have in a rational argument for natural selection? In other words, if there's doubt about whether or not natural selection leads, it, leads to true beliefs, then if you hold a naturalistic worldview, can you actually trust that your reasoning led you successfully to that belief? The power of reason is owed to the independence of reason and nothing else. Evolutionary biology cannot invoke the power of reason even as it destroys it. And so he's very aware of some of the contradictions that face people who hold to a naturalistic worldview, even though by, my, by all accounts, he's probably an agnostic. If our minds actually arose out of naturalistic evolution, then paranoid false beliefs are often more adaptive than accurate ones. In other words, there are way more false beliefs that will lead to adaptation and reproduction than true beliefs. 
Patricia Churchland says, the principal chore of brains is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Improvements in sensory motor control confer an evolutionary advantage. A fancier style of representing the world is advantageous so long as it enhances the organism's chance of survival. Truth, truth whatever it is, takes the hindmost. So really, the point is that it doesn't really matter what the truth is. In fact, you can multiply the, the, the many false beliefs that you can have that could lead to an adaptive feature and ultimately lead to reproduction. Think about an illustration like Bert the Caveman, right? Bert the Caveman's walking around, and he sees as he's walking around this lion. And for some reason, he has this false belief that seeing this lion signals that he should start running a marathon race that just so happens to be in the opposite direction of the lion, so he survives. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's say the next day he's walking along, sees that same lion sitting there, and he believes that the best way to show this lion affection is to run in the opposite direction, leading him to escape this lion. I mean, so, you know, obviously these are absurd examples, but you can multiply all the false beliefs that he could have in his mind that will cause him to flee from the lion, preventing the lion from eating him, and yet there's only one true belief that, that suggests that he should flee from the lion, that that is the lion is actually dangerous. And so what philosophers of mind have, have pointed out is that true beliefs don't lend itself really to survival and reproduction. In fact, there are way more false beliefs that do. <clears throat> what about beauty? You know, the idea of aesthetics. Um, you know, when you think about something that just strikes you as beautiful or, you know, think about music and how it just resonates. Um, I think uh, people, agnostics, have often wondered why they have this kind of uh, visceral reaction. Julian Barnes, an English author, talks about how he was struck by Mozart's Requiem. And to my knowledge, you know, he doesn't believe in God. In fact, he admits he doesn't believe in an afterlife. And yet there's something really striking about Mozart's Requiem, not only the arrangement of notes, but also the content of his Requiem that causes him to wonder, is there more? He says, it's one of the haunting hypotheticals for the non-believer. What would it be like if the Requiem were actually true? And you know, the content of the Requiem is about, it's about spiritual things. Leonard Bernstein, an American composer and conductor, talks about Beethoven and how that strikes him. He says, Beethoven, he has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish, something is right in the world, there's something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down, and yet he admits he's an agnostic. And so he feels this sense that there's something more as he experiences music. And people have had that same experience looking at art, that there's something transcendent, and yet they can't explain how they feel that way even though they hold to a naturalistic worldview. 
You know, the naturalists would say that the reason why we, we view things as beautiful, for example, if you go out and you see this beautiful landscape, the reason why we feel like it's beautiful and we're drawn to it is because it's an artifact from our ancestors who use that to find food sources. And so really what we have is just hardwired into who we are because of our ancestors. Not that there's any real meaning to that sense that we have that something's actually beautiful. What about human value and significance? You know, most of us have a reluctance to kill living things. And if you don't, then you have a problem. You should go to therapy. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, if it's a hot summer night and you, you swat a gnat, right, you don't feel bad about that. Or if you pick an apple off of a tree and you take a bite out of it, you don't feel this sense of moral guilt over doing something like that, right? And the reason is because we recognize that those things, by comparison to other things, contain very little value or significance. What about humans? What prevents us from the impulse that we sometimes have to go and kick somebody in the teeth or kill someone, right? It's, it's our belief that, that people have value, that they're significant. <clears throat> you know, really, uh, when we talk about humans, uh, the reason why we feel like people are valuable is that we have this sense that they're intrinsically significant, that there's something about them that makes them valuable. You know, in our day, equality is a huge thing. You know, most people are tolerant of practically anything, but the one thing in our culture that people are intolerant of is intolerance, right? And so this idea of equality is something that, that most people hold, and yet you have to answer the question, how do we arrive at equality when we have a naturalistic worldview? How do we arrive at that? In what sense are people actually equal? You know, think about a white male millionaire from Manhattan and a Mexican-American woman from East L.A. In what sense are they equal? Clearly, they're not equal in a socioeconomic sense. Clearly, that woman doesn't have the resources or opportunities that that white man has living in Manhattan. So obviously, they're not equal in that sense. Or think about the Rohingya people who are an ethnic minority in Myanmar and the ethnic majority that do not recognize them as one of the eight races in Myanmar, and they have systematically eliminated these people. In fact, the UN says that um, what's happening in Myanmar is crimes against humanity and that they're ethnically cleansing these people. Over the last few years, their population has diminished in Myanmar from nearly a million people to half a million people. And so in what sense are these people equal to the majority ethnic group in Myanmar? Are they equal to them militarily? Are they equal to them in terms of their rights? They're the minority group, right? So they're not equal in the sense that they don't have rights. Think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
you know, this weekend, um, bodybuilding freaks and fitness freaks are going to descend upon the, the convention center. And, um, you know, they're going to celebrate the Arnold Classic, this expo. And, you know, you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, especially in the 80s. I mean, this guy was a specimen, right? He was enormous. Now, think about Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? In his prime in the 80s, I want to venture to guess that he was stronger than nearly all women on earth, definitely all children on earth, and certainly all elderly people on earth at that time, okay? In fact, I'm sure that if Arnold faced a child, he would snap that child in half with his bare hands. So when we think about Arnold in his prime as a bodybuilder, in what sense is he equal to a 70-year-old woman, for instance? Um, He's certainly not equal to her in terms of physicality. Clearly, he's stronger than her. He can overpower her. Or think about this. A child with Down syndrome who obviously, due to his condition, has cognitive disabilities and a professor of economics at MIT. In what sense are those two individuals equal? Clearly, we're not talking about them being equal cognitively. You know, when we talk about this idea of equality, we're talking about intrinsic value, significance that people have. And yet, how can we talk about equality when we hold to a naturalistic framework? You know, this concept of equality really hinges upon the concept of human significance. So how does equality fit within the overall landscape of naturalism? You know, some would say, although human history is fraught with inequality, there was a certain level of cooperation that was necessary for survival and reproduction. And so therefore, what we see today, this feature of equality... It's an artifact of this time in the past where groups of people had to cooperate. And yet the problem with with this explanation is that we can't derive an ought from what is. In other words, this is merely a description of the way things are. It doesn't tell us how things ought to be. It certainly doesn't give human beings intrinsic value. So in what way do our lives contain meaning and significance? You know, this is really the age-old question. And and yet, when we look at the way we live our lives, you know, we live our lives as if our lives have meaning. We take care of ourselves. We go to school. We try to get a degree so that we can actually have a meaningful career. And the reason we do this is because we think our lives contain real meaning and significance. And yet, under a naturalistic worldview, in what sense is our lives meaningful or significant? I mean, we're just, we're just bags of chemicals sloshing around in the universe. What makes you significant? James Wood, a Harvard professor at New York uh, and, and a contributor to The New Yorker, talks about how his friend who's an analytical philosopher that she wakes up in cold sweats in the middle of the night 
And she, she asks herself this question. She says, how can it be that this world is the result of, accident, of an accidental big bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that my every life, beginning with, with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward is cosmically irrelevant? He, he points out that he has his own doubts about whether this naturalistic worldview accounts for these longings that he has. He says, as one gets older and parents and peers begin to die and the obituaries in the newspaper are no longer missives from a faraway place but local letters and one's own projects seem even more pointless and ephemeral, such moments of terror and incomprehension seem more frequent and more piercing and I find as likely to arise in the middle of the day as in the night. And here's a guy who's an agnostic thinker who admits that a life without meaning and significance is, is something that terrorizes him. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous existential philosopher, says really that there is, that this life is all that there is and he has a bleak outlook. He says, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. One always dies too soon or too late, and yet one's whole life is complete at that moment with a line drawn neatly under it, ready for the summing up. You are your life and nothing else. You know, if you hold to a naturalistic worldview, that there is no afterlife, that we live in a closed system of cause and effect, then your life truly has no meaning. You're just living a rat race. And yet, there's something within us that tells us that our lives do matter. That they indeed have, it, they have meaning. So how do we explain that when we hold to a naturalistic worldview? It's inexplicable. The alternative is that God says he's given us meaning and significance because he created us in his image and that we are equal whether it's racially, along gender lines, uh, no matter what your sexual preference might be, that we are all equal because God created us in his image. That is the true basis for equality, not something that we generate from within. What about free will? This is the last area we want to look at. <clears throat> when we hold to a naturalistic worldview, it does real funky things to this whole idea of free will and consciousness. <clears throat> you know, if the, the universe consists of a closed system of cause and effect, then our minds must be determined as well. It's just, a, it's just chemical reactions going off in our brain that, you know, our, mind, our, our senses are taking in this stimuli and that it's creating these reactions in our brain that cause us to behave a certain way. That's all there is to it. Stephen Hawking, the famous astrophysicist, says the molecular basis for biology shows that biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and therefore are determined as the orbits of the planets. So it seems that we are no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. In other words, that significant decision that you contemplated 
that you weighed the pros and cons on, that kept you up in the middle of the night, that at the end of the day, you didn't really make a significant decision. You were determined to do that. Leonid Perlovsky, former professor at NYU, says, most people, including many philosophers and scientists, refuse to accept that their decisions are governed by the same laws of nature as a piece of rock by the road, wayside, or a leaf flown by the wind. Yet the reconciliation of scientific causality and free will remains an unsolved problem. Yeah, our free will is just, it's really a matter of cause and effect, nothing more. It's like a chemical reaction. You know, you think about when you put a little bit of baking soda into vinegar, right? Creates this chemical reaction. And we can actually predict how um, much CO2 this is going to release each time we perform the experiment. And, you know, our observation is going to be consistent. Each time you put a little bit of the baking soda into the vinegar, it has the same reaction each time. Right? And so it's always the same. It never changes. And so in the same way, when we think about our minds, our brain, it's just a matter of cause and effect, nothing more. It's a chemical reaction. Now, the thing is, human responsibility and uh, really depends upon free will. Um, If you don't have free will, then, then we can't really account for Uh, why people are responsible for certain acts that they commit. Again, Perlovsky says, free will, however, has a fundamental position in many cultures. Morality and judicial systems are based on free will. Denying free will threatens to destroy the entire social fabric of a society. Yeah, so if people are not really free, if they're doing what they were caused or determined to do, then really, why are we holding them accountable for, for things that they've done? doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> Richard Dawkins um, on this uh, website called The Edge responded to this question. What's your dangerous idea? This is the, and they brought together a number of the greatest you know, thinkers uh, in the world and uh, Dawkins responds with this incredible uh, piece. He, he calls it, um, why are we getting angry at Basil's car? Um, <clears throat> this is kind of a long quote, but I think at the end I, it, it puts together this whole idea. He says, ask people why they support the death penalty or prolonged incarceration for serious crimes, and the reasons they give usually involve retribution. There may be passing mention of deterrence or rehabilitation, but the surrounding rhetoric gives the game away. People want to kill a criminal as payback for the horrible things he did, or they want to give satisfaction to the victims of the crime or their relatives. An especially warped and disgusting application of the flawed concept of retribution is Christian crucifixion as atonement for sin. Retribution, as a moral principle, is incompatible with a scientific view of human behavior. As scientists, we believe that human brains, though we may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are as surely governed by the laws of physics. When a computer malfunctions, we don't punish it. We track down the problem and fix it, usually by replacing a damaged component. 
He says, Basil Fawlty, British television's uh, hotelier from hell, was at the end of his tether when his car broke down and wouldn't start. He gave it fair warning, counted to three, gave it one more chance, and then he acted. He got out of the car, seized the tree branch, and set about thrashing the car within an inch of its life. Of course, we laugh at his irrationality. Instead of beating the car, we would investigate the problem. Are the spark plugs or the distributor points damp? Has it simply run out of gas? Why do we not react in the same way to a defective man, a murderer, say, or a rapist? Why don't we just laugh at a judge who punishes a criminal just as heartily as we laugh at Basil Fawlty? Isn't the murderer or a rapist just a machine with a defective component or a defective upbringing, defective education, defective genes? But doesn't a truly scientific, mechanistic view of the nervous system make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility, whether diminished or not? Any crime, however heinous, is in principle to be blamed on conditions acting through the accused's physiology, his heredity, and environment. Don't, ju- do, don't judicial hearings to decide questions of blame or diminish responsibility make little sense for a faulty man as for a faulty car? Why is it that we humans find it almost impossible to accept such conclusions? Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers or on thuggish vandals when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. Presumably because mental constructs like blame and responsibility, indeed evil and good, are built into our brains by millennia of Darwinian evolution. Assigning blame and responsibility is an aspect of the useful fiction of intentional agents that we construct in our brains as a means of shortcutting the truer analysis of what's going on. My dangerous idea is that we shall eventually grow out of all this and even learn to laugh at it, just as we laugh at Basil Fawlty when he beats his car. And so you could see how this is the natural outgrowth of his naturalistic worldview. We're just machines. Why are we punishing machines? We would never treat any of our machines that way. We would simply assess the problem, fix it, or replace it. And yet he admits, I fear it's unlikely that I shall ever reach this level of enlightenment. And yet there have been some who have reached this level of enlightenment. One famous author says, it would be impossible to find a fox which has a kindly and protective disposition toward geese, just as no cat exists which has a friendly disposition toward mice. That is why the struggle between the various species does not arise from a feeling of hostility, but rather from hunger. In both cases, nature looks on calmly and is even pleased with what happens. There cannot be a separate law for mankind in a world in which planets and suns follow their orbits, where moons and planets trace their destined paths. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. And he lived this out consistently. And it led to the Holocaust of millions of people. Despite our best attempts, we can't shake this sense that we possess free will. It's hardwired into who we are, and it's not based on natural selection. It's that we represent the very image of God who acts freely and has created in us the ability to choose freely. 
So going back to our passage, he says this evidence, it's within them. It's in each and every one of us. And so when we believe people are significant, free moral beings, we imply that God must have created them with a spiritual nature. In order to, to capture those qualities and admit that they're real, we have to go beyond what we see and there has to be something metaphysical, something beyond the physical realm in order to be able to say that these qualities exist. If we turn around and deny such a God created, we're, really, we're either confused or we're being dishonest. And that's what Paul was pointing out in this passage. He says that those individuals, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, knowing that God is real, despite our best attempts to suppress that belief. Okay, let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, we're not suggesting that Christians are better than others. We're not saying that we um, never fall into hypocrisy. We're simply saying that our worldview is something that we can live consistently with. Whereas the naturalistic worldview, it's impossible to live consistently with that. Secondly, we're only saying that God made himself evident within us. We're not suggesting that um, based on this we should believe in Jesus Christ. But there's aspects of who we are when we look within that tell us that there must be more than just the physical world. There must be more than just natural law that governs this universe. Also, our own actions show at some deep level we know a personal God made us. The fact that we would live in a way that shows these moral emotions, that we live in a way that suggests we think our lives actually have meaning, that we act in such a way that suggests we are choosing freely. I think it raises this question, who is God and what is he like? And I think to answer that question, Come next week and see what God has revealed about himself as we jump into Romans chapter two. You know, I'm grateful that things like this uh, sense that our lives are filled with meaning and significance, this idea of uh, equality, things like um, our free will, that these aren't mere illusions that we are, um, that we're believing in but that we have a real basis for belief in in, uh, all these things because you created us in your image. And uh, I pray, Lord, for, you know, those of us who are seeking, who are trying to find answers to some of uh, life's questions, that um, you would speak directly to us. I pray that we can uh, just have a moment of honesty and call out to you. We would uh, ask if you're real, and we trust that, You are the living God and that you will respond. And uh, finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who uh, maybe are intrigued by some of these different arguments we've listened to over the last few weeks. Pray that uh, we continue to to feed or or, uh, just, you know, fuel our spiritual hunger that we're feeling by uh, continuing to come out and uh, listening to what Paul has to say through Romans. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.